We'll take your Bibles again and turn with me to 2 Kings, 2 Kings 22, page 311. Try to get a copy digitally or hard copy in front of you if at all possible. As believers in Christ and as those who believe that this is the Word of God, we find ourselves a decreasing minority. And in our culture, those who believe this is God's Word, those who believe that this is what God says, we find that we are at odds about basic things like what's a family, what is, uh, what is moral, what is gender. And God's views on these things are no longer considered holy, but actually hateful. It's a, it's a dark uh, scene when you think clearly about it. Our world is broken in many ways, and, and that's not okay. But we're going to be okay. We're looking today at King Josiah, king of Judah. He inherited a nation much I think like our own when he came to the throne, 640 B.C. But although his world was dark, he became a significant light impacting others. Really the last light, the last good king of, of Judah. And I find great encouragement. It, it happened because he was different and he had a heart for God. A heart that sought God. This is the first of really two weeks we'll look at the life of Josiah. The significant event that we're looking at today is how he restored, repaired the uh, deteriorating temple. But he, he teaches us so much more than that. Verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidiah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or the left. Last week, if you were with us, you know we focused on the life of Manasseh. That's Josiah's grandfather. Uh, he was known for, best known for his extreme evil for decades. He was on the throne 55 years. And although he later repented, later in his life, the impact of his evil was everywhere. He was succeeded by his son Ammon, Josiah's father, who reigned only two years because some of his own people assassinated him two years into his, his reign. And then the nation uh, held those assassins accountable and executed them. And uh, anyhow, that's how young Josiah at age eight is anointed king of Israel because, in fact, he was the rightful uh, heir to the throne in the line of David 300-some years before. Of course, as an eight-year-old, some other administrative officials will have had to have rule and, and uh, run things until he was of age. The statement in verse 2 is exactly what we hope to see as we study kings, that someone did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, this is somebody with this basic sense of accountability that I am not just 
on here to do what I want, this, this earth, but rather I am accountable to the one who made the earth, and I, I do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. It's a, it's a fundamental uh, position of, of our heart. In fact, it says he didn't turn to the right or the left, just like David. He had to go back to David, uh, that, that ancestor, to find someone who was as determined to do what was right in God's eyes. Uh, he was like his great-grandfather that we studied, Hezekiah, who was also compared to being David-like. And so unlike his dad and grandpa, who veered into every deadly ditch of ungodliness, uh, he was determined to stay on the, the road, not turning to the right or the left, the road of godliness. It seemed that Josiah had the ability to learn from his, his dad's and grandfather's mistakes. And it's encouraging to us because if you uh, inherited a uh, spiritually muddy legacy, this teaches us we don't have to be like the examples we have seen. We, we are our own in accountability and in the, in the privilege, the opportunity to follow uh, the Lord. So he's eight years old when he is anointed, and, and when we get to verse 3, we see it's the 18th year of his reign. So there's a big leap from uh, age 8, and then do the math, 8 plus 18 is 26 years old when he begins the uh, temple project that we'll study. So what happened between 8 and 26 for this young man? We get a few things that are filled in from Second Chronicles. So he's appointed king at the death of his father. He begins the temple repair project at age 26, but Second Chronicles adds this, that in the eighth year of his reign, 8 plus 8, he's 16, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. So by 16, he'd made a very important decision. And then we're also told in 2 Chronicles, next uh, statement, that at age 20, in his 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, Asherah poles, and idols. And that's actually going to be the focus of our study next week. It's what we find in 2 Kings 23 as well. But let's, let's think about what he did when he was 16 years old. He began to seek the God of his father, David. First decision, seek God. Get to know him and set your desire on him. If you picture being an eight-year-old who gets news that your dad was just assassinated. There's some, there's some PTSD or something that's going to shock you with that news and living with that news, and yet now you're also told you're going to be the king replacing him. And what we know is that between age 8 and age 16, he had to process who he was and what he was going to be. So that by age 16, he had made up his mind. <clears throat> My world around me is a mess spiritually. I will not be that. Age 8 to 16 is really important. It's amazing what 8-year-olds understand, right? And so if, if you find yourself as a young person between 8 and 16 especially, you are processing the direction of your life in a, in a segment of your life that there is, no, there is none more important, really. Because you can set your direction by age 16. So if you're 8 or 9 years old, or 10, or 11, or 12, or 13, or 14, or 15, 
or 16, or you know someone who is, you are at a significant stage of your life, and Josiah decided, I'm going to follow the Lord. I believe that God is the God of me. I'm encouraged to see many young people part of our ministries here, Typically on a Sunday morning during the next hour when we're not eating Thanksgiving dinner or brunch, we, uh, the whole lower level is filled with kids looking at the Word of God. Wednesday night, if you happen to come by to one of the adult ministries in that area, all over here, there are kids who are being drawn not just to be with their friends, but actually to believing that there is something true and something to be known of God. And if you're ever wondering in this spiritually declining culture, if there is hope, uh, talk, to one, talk to Pastor Nate or anybody that's working with any of our youth, and, and you can hear of young people who are catching on to the realities and the truth. Verse 3 picks up the story then of Josiah at age 26. His heart is set on God internally, but his relationship with God is not just like, well, that, that's kind of my business. Everybody can do what they want, and I'm, I'm just going to keep my relationship with God private. Instead, he realized that he was in a position of influence, and we really all are. And he said, I want to have an influence on others. And so we find that he has a heart for worship. With very little direction, very little encouragement around him, God was working in his heart to say, I want to worship this God, and I want others to worship with me. Verse 3, in the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, an administrative official, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah the high priest and have him get ready the money that had been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrust it, the money, to the men appointed to supervise or oversee the work on the temple, and have those men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Also have them purchase timber and dressed stone to repair the temple. And then it's interesting note, but they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are acting faithfully. So just by seeking God, Josiah realized something has to be done about this place where we say we come to worship God. Everybody could see there was, there was a need. So he sends his secretary, Shaphan, he's in charge of the, king, the kingdom documents, it seems, but he also has this administrative oversight. And he says, go to the temple and talk to the number one guy at the temple, the high priest, and tell them, you know, people have still been giving money when they come to the temple, and, and it's, it's gathered, and we got to spend that money to fix up what has been deteriorating. And evidently, it was some major repairs needed. Did you notice in verse 6 the need for timbers and dressed stones? Those aren't decoration. <laughs> what needed was needed was not just, you know, whitewashing the walls and cleaning some cobwebs out of the corners. There were some structural repairs and it was in such bad shape and why was it in such bad shape? Second Chronicles 34:11 says the buildings which the kings of Judah had allowed to fall into ruin. It wasn't for lack of money. This was not financial frugality. This is spiritual apathy. 
And so Josiah says, we've got to do something about this. And verse 5 tells about the building committee he put together. The supervisors, the ones with, with oversight, and tell them to start spending this money to hire the carpenters, builders, and, and the masons. And the supervisors that he put in charge were so trustworthy, they didn't even need to keep any books. They could just be trusted to take money out of the boxes and treasure boxes and, and just give it out. Principle. Trustworthy people are self-accountable because they are God-accountable. That's the reason they were trustworthy, is because they felt also they were trustworthy. I'd like to think they were following after the example of their boss. They had already learned from young Josiah, who began to seek the Lord at 16, and now at 26 was starting this project that he's accountable to God, we need to be accountable to God, and they could be trusted with money. At Open Door, we also trust our staff and leaders in building committee, but just so you know, we do keep track of the things. And we do have uh, accountability, we have records, we have, we have audits and budgets, and, but I would say this with 100% confidence that anybody handling numbers or money here, I would trust just as well as these. But here's a challenge. You may work at a place where you've seen things fudged. Uh, people who cheat or work, wink at cheating. All you need to stand out in a situation like that is just be totally honest. And you, you, your, your testimony for, for Christ has already begun just by being entirely honest because you're accountable to God. You don't need the boss or accountant or auditor checking up on you. First, uh, Colossians 3.22 says, obey your masters not only when their eye is on you, when you're held accountable, nor to win their favor, because you're trying to get a better position, but fearing the Lord. That's, that's what transforms the way we work with honesty and integrity. Second observation, even in sinful times, God awakens the hearts of the sincere. So it does not really matter what is happening out there in, in the most important sense. Because there are hearts that God is awakening. Yours and, and people around us. Josiah had every reason to live like his culture. Every reason to follow the bad example of now some 60 de uh, six decades of, of evil in the palace. But he said, I won't. Because God was stirring him. One of the exciting things uh, at Open Door is to uh, continually, and you might be one of these, that has shown up after with a desire to worship and know the Word of God when maybe there has been years, decades, when you haven't been actively worshiping, and yet you have sensed God stirring that you want to know Him better. You want to know His Word. And so this had been at work, this, this desire had been at work in Josiah, and then he wanted others to be involved, and so he's, he's saying, we've got to do something about, this is where we gather to worship God, we've got to make this a place that, that people would want to come to worship God. And at 26, he knew he had as a king the, the influence to get it going, and so God awakened his heart. So it's okay if we're a minority, it's okay if you're a minority, as you have that stirring of God in your heart. But be a growing minority, 
right? I mean, God is going to use you to influence somebody else for him. Godliness, you would have to think, was outvoted in Judah at that time. And, And we will see that godliness will be outvoted in our culture. God's never outvoted. Because God is still doing the most important thing that he is doing. Because we can get the impression as we you know, follow our news feeds that that is most important. But look at God's view of his earth and he says, no, this is what's most important. You are what's most important. I am, I am focused on my precious minority. And so we must be also. The bonus plan of God is that when you seek him, you are also the one that's going to experience joy. There won't be a lot of real joy out there. But we can have that joy, but it's going to take A, seek God, B, hang out with other people who seek God. Seek God and, and stick together. And so you need to be connected enough with others who are seeking God, and then you'll be encouraged. But if you choose to be, and there's a... There's, there's a There's so many Christians that I fear are so focused on sniffing out sin in our culture and surprise they find it that it has has developed in them a, a chronic negativity when in fact we should be the most positive people in a dark world because we are part of the, the real things that God is doing. Paul is the best example to me. He was living in the times of the worst political corruption, serious sexual immorality, personal persecution. But he's the guy writing from prison, rejoice in the Lord always, always rejoice. We have every reason to rejoice. Why? Because even my guards are spreading the gospel and there is stuff happening that is unexplainable apart from the hand of God working through his people and his word. And so he was a joyful guy. So I just urge you to not just be a Josiah, but find others and hang out with the Josiahs who have joy. Be an encouragement. Well, the building project is launched. And so people begin to notice something's different now with Josiah on the throne. Because you know the temple down there? Oh yeah, everybody, I know where the temple is. We still go there. But now there's, there's work wagons pulling up there all week long. Kind of like the white vans you see when stuff is under construction. And there's noise, and there's people giving instructions, there's people carrying stuff in and out. There's dust. And there begins to be an enthusiasm that what's going on in the temple is important. And as amazing as it was, as good as it was that the temple was being repaired, that wasn't the real win. Verse 8. Hilkiah the high priest. He's, of course, there at the temple where the work's being done. Said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. This this is like almost shocking to us, but the book of the law is the scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books. I found a copy. He gave it to Shaphan who read it. 
Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors of the temple. But then he says, I got other news. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book, probably a scroll, and Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes, a sign of grief and fear. He was so convicted. It's hard for us to imagine that they had gone such an extended time without having a single copy of the word of God. But if you just rewind the tape to what we've studied, we've been, they've been living under Manasseh, who was this guy that was taking stuff out of the temple, dragging in the idols and the false altars and the Asherah poles. We can imagine that as evil as he was, he may have been destroying the copies of the word of God. But somewhere in that temple, God preserved a copy. Maybe there was some godly priest, maybe had passed away by now, that said, we got to preserve the word of God. But if you take the decades of Manasseh and two years of Ammon, and now he's 18 years into his reign when they find what we have sitting on our shelves in various versions or at our fingertips on our phones and tablets. And when they read it, Josiah was shocked. Shaphan gets it and reads it in the presence of the king. And, and, and from what he, he, he will then describe, it seems that they were reading from like Deuteronomy. And, and probably when it says he read it to the king, he probably read all those five books. So it took quite a few hours of quite a few days to get through that. And so Josiah is hearing the word of God after never, ever hearing it. And yet there's been a temple. And there's been a priest. And people had actually been giving money. So they were going through the motions of religion without communicating the word of God. Does that ever happen? It's sad that in so many places of worship, there are the motions of religion, but not actually reading, absorbing the Word of God. So how does he respond? When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robe, and he gave these orders to five men, to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam son of Shaphan, Achor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's attendant. Gives his orders. He sends a, a five official commission, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that's been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning who? Concerning us. This is written to us and we haven't been looking at it. We didn't know it. We didn't know it. There were some very specific things that are in the, 
the book of Deuteronomy, especially the most recent of those five books, that this is what a king should or should not do. This is what a nation should or should not do. And we've not been doing it. He is shaken to the core and says, we need to check this out. See, Josiah realized that they were accountable for all the word of God, even though they did not know what was written in the word of God. Did you know that you are accountable for everything in this Bible, even though you don't know everything that's written in the Bible? Proof of that is if when you leave here this morning or afternoon, you fly through that stop sign because you were thinking about something else and you just, you frankly just didn't see it. And one of the Zaki Sheriff's deputies pulls you over and you say, I'm so sorry. I completely forgot. I did not see the stop sign. And what will he say? He'll say, oh, that's okay if you didn't see it. What he will say is, no, I'm still writing you a ticket because you are responsible to look for stop signs. You are responsible to see the stop signs and to stop at the stop signs. So whether or not you saw it is irrelevant. It was there. And you're accountable. And that God has given us his word and we are accountable for all of it. And it just raises the stakes of us understanding that I need to know this book better and better. So for wherever you are, that's okay. But wherever you are in your knowledge of the word of God, it's got to increase. Because you are accountable for what is written in this book. And Josiah has a terrorized look, I think, on his face because the nation's been running stop signs all that time. So he sends the commission Go inquire of God. He says, I, I, I've, I've just heard God's word read to me these past days. But you know, I'm a Bible newbie, he says. So could you go to a prophet, find a prophet someplace to, say, to find out, does it, does it mean what it seems like it means? Because great is the Lord's anger. If this is true, God is going to judge us. And you see, if you have a heart for God, and he did, you will have a rightful fear of God. Part of what uh, he will have heard read from the book of Deuteronomy, picture where, where Josiah is in history. It's 622 B.C. when they find the book of the law. Moses is writing it, Deuteronomy at 1400 B.C., so it's like 800 years earlier. And Moses here is actually writing about a time when Israel will have a king. In fact, he's writing about a time after there are no more kings and the nation has been judged. So Moses is writing there about here. Josiah's right here. And here's what he wrote. All the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to the land over here? Why this fierce burning anger? And the answer will be, it is because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their ancestors. And Josiah hears that and goes, you mean someday we're going to be judged for what we're doing wrong now? And God over here told us and warned us and said, there's stop signs and there's go signs and there's, there's things you're supposed to do and not do. And we haven't been doing it. And to, and to make the weight of this even greater is that Deuteronomy says he is a king. When Israel has a king, and he says, I'm a king. 
When Israel has a king, the king has one main job, to start running the kingdom. Here's his responsibility. When he, the king, takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priest. So the, the Levitical priest would have a copy. What was the king supposed to do? He was to write for himself, take, a, take ink and a quill and hand write a copy of Genesis through Deuteronomy in Hebrew. Of course, he was Hebrew. It is to be with him. What's to be with him? The copy that he handwrites is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days. That's not Sunday, by the way, or Saturday. He is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of the law and these decrees. Can you imagine Josiah with a tender heart towards God reading that and going, you know, like our memes say, he had one job. <laughs> and he didn't do it. But he realized suddenly that to be a king with a heart for God, wanting to please God, do what was right in that sight of God, he has to know the word of God. I can picture him with the color draining from his face. He says, we are in trouble. And he has a statement in verse 13, our fathers have not obeyed the words of of this book that are written about us, our fathers, and actually I take that quite literally. Our fathers are men. Men, do we realize that God holds us especially responsible to know his word? It's our job because we're leaders, and if we're leaders under God's authority, we are spiritual leaders. It's like a dad humbly admitting yeah, we have, we have a spiritual family problem, and I'm, I'm the leader. I've not been loving my wife like Christ loved the church. I've not been maybe bringing up my children to know the word. I've not been faithful in fellowship. I've not been seeking to walk in the spirit with love and joy and peace, kindness and gentleness, self-control. And it's like this all was just weighing in on Josiah. God was speaking at this moment with great clarity. And it came from hearing God's word. The wake-up call was through the word of God. God was working in him. God was working him over. And if God begins to do that in your life, the first step is to Become a man, a woman, a teen of the word. On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Because, as Pastor Seth read from Jeremiah, his word is like a fire. It's like a rock. It has power, or the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament would say, it's like a sword. Word of God is alive and active. This isn't dead words on a page. As you begin to absorb the Word of God, it's like it takes on life, and you realize that the God who created everything that exists is talking by His Spirit to you through His Word. It's like a double-edged sword. So we're on the battlefield, 
it's, it's almost as you read the rest of this, it's like in a butcher shop. But I like to think a little more positive. It's like the doctor who takes the knife in surgery. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Some, some versions say the motives of the heart. And so God begins to work on us. I dare you to read the Word of God daily for several months. Man, woman, or teen, or child. I dare you to read the Word of God daily for several months and be unchanged. Because it'll begin to ask, God will begin to ask us questions like, what about how you've been, what about this habit? What about this reaction? How about this motive? How about your desire for revenge? How about this illicit pleasure? How about this way of manipulating or controlling? It's got to go. And and God's word will begin to profoundly impact us. And we'll begin to ask those questions like Josiah did. Well, what do I do next? What's the next step of obedience? And is there there something I'm confessing? Is there an apology? We're going to seek support of others in in, in study or talk to a friend or a pastor. But it all starts with the word of God. And, And as you do that... God begins to work, and you find that there is now light in the dark world, and you're less focused on how dark that world is, and you're actually able to see now what God is doing to produce light in your life. So yeah, the world is broken, but God's at work in you, and God's at work in others. So Josiah says to these five guys, go and find out from the Lord what we're supposed to do about it. Verse 14. Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbar, Shaphan, and Isaiah went to speak to the prophetess, that's a female prophet, Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. Did you ever hear someone say, the Bible's just a list of fables and myths? Then why would you point out who all the relatives were what occupations they had, where they lived, and what district. This, this is a historical book. This, is, this, is, this really happened. So they go to the prophetess, since the vast majority of prophets in the Old Testament were men. It's a little surprising to us, but it shouldn't be too surprising that there would be a prophetess because God uh, spoke to Miriam, the prophetess, Moses' uh, sister, Exodus 15. Deborah, was not only a judge, but a prophetess, Judges 4. Isaiah's wife was also a prophetess, Isaiah 8. And Noadia was a prophetess who wrongly opposed Nehemiah, Nehemiah 6. So God is using Huldah this time with a message of disaster and judgment. She said, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. So Josiah hears the words, yes, 
What you read in Deuteronomy about what God will do if the nation does this is it's really going to happen. The first part of the message is very clearly that judgment is inevitable. The stories of the Old Testament, the, of what happened between Joshua all the way to 2 Kings, a big chunk of your Old Testament is covering these 800 or so years, is a story actually of the sin of Israel and the grace of God. What's amazing is how long it took for God to fulfill his promised judgment on the nation when you consider how serious sin is before a holy God that he delayed and delayed and delayed some 800 years. 1400 B.C., after Moses uh, brings the people out of Egypt and Joshua takes them into the land, they, they conquer, God gives them victory, he gives them all this precious property. And what follows is another it's 40 years of wilderness and 360 years of judges in which it says, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. If it wasn't for the judges that came in and delivered them occasionally, the nation of Israel living in this gifted land is a mess. At some point, Samuel, the last uh, judge, hears them say, we want a king, and he understands that eventually God said, I'll let you have a king, although it's not my first choice. And so he gave them kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, who all reigned over the United Kingdom. For 110 years, you had three kings, uh, one really good, one kind of good, and one not so good, who ruled over the nation of Israel until Solomon's son Rehoboam blew things apart and you now have a northern kingdom that we've been studying, ministered to by men like Elijah and Elisha and uh, classic evil king Ahab as an example of the 19 bad kings that they had in succession. Meanwhile, the southern kingdom, then called Judah, primarily focused on Jerusalem and maintaining the temple, continued on, and there were 12 bad kings that we've studied, and, and now eight good kings. Josiah is the eighth. He is the last light in a dark world. What happened to the northern kingdom? Well, it's already happened. In 100 years before the book of the law was found, that nation was deported to Assyria, uh, defeated by them, and most of the people, especially the officials, left, uh, took, uh, taken away and disseminated into other cultures. But Judah was still there, and st but you still had enough bad kings. But eventually, God says, time is running out. And by 586, as we'll get to in a couple of weeks, uh, the nation is also going to be judged and taken away and deported this time by the new superpower of Babylon. So we're only like 30, 40 years from the end. And all this, what this teaches us is that God has been very patient but that every human being has a timeline called death. Every nation has a timeline. And in fact, the earth itself has a timeline. A couple of years ago, we were studying uh, for a season uh, Bible prophecy and the, the big picture of what is God's plan for the earth. The earth is going to be burned up, folks. It's going to be burned up. So there's a timeline where everything runs out, but right now we are living in a very uh, wonderful time called the church age or the age of grace. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would be 
burned up for every sin, but God has always been gracious. God has always been patient. God has delayed uh, his judgment in so many ways. He longs to be gracious. I can only imagine how God is delighted to, to see Josiah, a king with a, with a heart like this. And so Josiah encourages us as we live in a spiritually dark world to say, you know what? God is still showing grace and we should, we should enjoy the grace, the freedom we have. We don't know where things are going, but enjoy uh, being lights in a dark world. God is caring for his precious minority. So, but there's a, there's a deadline that God knows. But here's what's remarkable. God delights to delay his judgment. Verse 19, or 18, tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is all coming from the prophetess, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart, Josiah, was responsive. And you humbled yourself, Josiah, before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and his people, that they would become accursed and laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. <laughs> it would be different for Josiah because his heart was responsive when he heard the word of God. He tore his robes, verse 11. He had like this instant obedient response when he hears the word of God says, I'm not in alignment with the word of God. I've got to do something about it. You know, instant obedience is what God is looking for. It's what parents long for with young children, right? You long that they would obey your word. That's what's going to keep them safe. Don't run into the street. Don't do that. I've asked you to do this. Do it now. Not when I get to three. Do it now. We long for instant obedience largely because in our love for them, we don't really want to escalate to greater discipline and cause more pain. But we want them to be safe. We want them to obey. And we want them to learn obedience in our address so that they don't have to face the harder ways of learning things from the Lord someday. So where are where are you with hearing God's word and instantly obeying? God hears. This is amazing. Did you notice that? I have heard you, verse 19. You were responsive and humbled when you heard from the word. Therefore, I have heard you. God hears those who hear him. That changes our prayer life, doesn't it? God hears those who hear him him. And God heard and God showed grace to him and says, I'm going to put this off. How God decides things in sovereignty, I don't know, but I'm not going to let you see what I'm going to do to this place. Peter in the New Testament wrote about God's desire, his propensity to spare those who respond to him. Exhibit A, Noah. 
If he, God, did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, right? He covered the whole earth with a very literal, real flood. But he protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. They were in the ark. So the whole world's evil. They said, I'm going to take care of Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. Exhibit B, Lot. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and he did, he burned Sodom and Gomorrah, and if he rescued Lot, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard, we understand. And if this is so, exhibit A, Noah, exhibit B, Lot, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. The godly. God has spared so many believers in so many ways. Yes, there's persecution. Yes, there's martyrdom. But God has spared so many. Next chapter, Peter said, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise of judgment, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. So, so anyone is exhibit C. He doesn't want anyone to perish. That's why I sent Christ to pay the penalty for our sin so that we will not perish but have eternal life, John 3.16. And if, and if you're someone who has not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that is, that he paid for your sins and rose again, then that is your step of transformation, repentance, because he doesn't want you to perish forever. If you're someone who has already placed your faith in Christ, then repentance could be anything that he has talked to you about today or what he will talk to you about on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, when you're in his word. But he doesn't want to... that, That is the heart of God. Isaiah ministered to his great-grand, Josiah's great-grandfather, wrote, these are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. That this, this book is not an option. This is not something makes me think. This is not something that just makes me kind of inspired to do better. This is something that makes me tremble. This is my word's like a fire. Breaks rocks. And changes my stubborn heart. We sometimes assume, and sadly the world assumes, that God is eager to judge. But if we had any view of the, any clear view of the, of the true holiness of God, we'd realize how patient he has been. Centuries with the world, maybe decades with ourselves, and we would be overwhelmed by the grace of God for us instead. So find the book and devote yourself to seek the God of the book. Let's pray. Lord, as believers, we have uh, often 20-20 vision of uh, the sinfulness of our world, and it can anger us as if we were you. Help us instead to be so focused on you and your holiness that 
we are more angry at our own sin than the sins of the world. And that we would be um, grieving and rightly reverent when your word exposes something in us. And then, Lord, to realize the amazing transformation you work in our lives, the uh, great willingness and eagerness you have to show us grace and the incredible peace and joy that comes from walking with you and rejoicing in you regardless of the sinfulness of the world around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.